0: Welcome to the Member Engagement Show with Higher Logic, the podcast for association professionals looking to boost retention, gain new members, and deepen member involvement. Each episode, we'll bring on some experts, talk shop about engagement, and you'll walk away with strategies proven to transform your organization. I'm Kelly Whalen, a marketing professional and association enthusiast, and I'm so happy you're here. And now let's start the show. Welcome back to the Member Engagement Show. Today, I'm here with my colleague, Steph Reed, to talk about HireLogic's 2022 Email Benchmark Report, which we published earlier this year. Steph is HireLogic's Senior Marketing Automation Manager. So uh, basically, she's our email marketing expert. And I personally really enjoy nerding out with her about email because she offers a lot of, like a huge wealth of knowledge. Um, Steph recently presented on our webinar on the topic of email benchmarks as well. And I'm looking forward to following up on some of the great questions that came up during that session. So Steph, let's get into it. Um, Did you want to start out by sharing some of what you found most interesting about the email benchmarking report?
1: Hey Kelly, thanks for having me. Very excited to be here. And I'm also super excited about the email benchmark report. I think it's chock full of wonderful information. So I know we're just gonna cover a bit of that today, but I think the most interesting piece about HigherLogic's 2022 email benchmark report is that it's actually based off of real emails from real associations. So we gathered data from over 1,500 organizations. It was over 200 billion emails collected to analyze. And again, it was sent specifically by associations that were located in the United States, Australia, and Canada. So it's really, really cool. Sometimes you hear Um, Some data points from other companies and it's sort of vague and only sideways related to what you do. But in this case, our report is so highly specified with real data for associations that um, it just feels way more applicable to what our audience is doing. And I think it's pretty cool and unique in the space.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I had the pleasure of working a little bit on the report and I felt the same way that it was it's very cool to see like the specifics of association data because I do enjoy looking at email benchmark reports um, for an idea of like where performance data should be landing um, and being able to compare directly to data from your specific industry is even more valuable than just having those general benchmarks. So let's maybe uh, summarize some of the report sections. Do you want to maybe start us off with the mail privacy protection section?
1: Sure, absolutely. I know this is a hot topic. um, And just for the folks that might not know what mail privacy protection is, um, this was a new change from Apple in particular, where um, your open rates that are tracked in emails back it all the way up is tracked when there is a tiny, tiny pixel um, that's invisible to the human eye that is sent along with your email and it's kind of hidden in the code. And when an email recipient opens your email, it opens that pixel, downloads it, and that is what means your email has then been opened. That's what tracks it, is when that triggered pixel is downloaded. Um, But with the implementation of Apple's mail privacy protection, which we call MPP, and uh, it's changed the way that we can track opens, particularly with anybody that uses an Apple device. So they've given users the ability to turn off or anonymize themselves to say they don't want their personal activity tracked. And by doing that, Apple then turns on a sort of net that catches and preloads all of the emails into a separate server before it goes to the end user. It downloads all the images, it takes everything and stores it in a completely different spot. And so that means the open rates we're seeing in particular where people have turned on MPP is inflated because those emails are then being downloaded sort of in bulk. And it's not actually hitting the user's inbox as a unique open anymore. So we're losing a lot of insight into what happens behind that net because it then turns into a wall that protects the end user's data from being sent back to us in what I would call an accurate way. So because of that, there's a couple other things that are affected. We don't get great data on geolocation and demographic information for these users anymore. can't really tell if they've opened an email 100%. Things like that are are just a little bit inflated now um, because of this new MPP protection from Apple. I know that it's something
0: that marketers have been talking about since it went into effect. And one of the interesting things for me in the report is that there's a graph that shows like before mail privacy protection went into place and then after. And you can literally see there's like a horizontal line showing like kind of the average open rates. And then when mail privacy protection goes into place, that line escalates. It increases. So it goes up and then it levels off again. So at least that's that's pretty interesting that it then levels off again because we are seeing that artificial inflation because, again, instead of individual users opening the message and then the pixel downloading instead now it's like apple for anyone who's turned on mail privacy protection is automatically downloading those pixels so you are seeing that inflation in the open rate but it's about at least for our data it's about nine percent so you can kind of you get that sense that like yeah my my open rates are inflated about nine percent and knowing that was really
1: helpful to be able to see exactly kind of what that impact was When this was announced back in the day, and this is where, like, the email geeks will come in and know this. Um, there was a lot of chatter in the email space of what's gonna happen, what are our rates gonna look like, are they going to be willy nilly and kind of all over the place, like what's going to happen? So I think when you look at this graph, which is also one of my favorite parts of the report because it's so cool, you can see that it's leveled out and it's sort of renormalized itself now. So again, to your point, we can see that it's a little bit artificially inflated but it's sort of hit its stride again. So now we can use that as the new baseline to try track going forward, but it is really neat to see that it isn't all over the place like a wild roller coaster and that it has leveled out and we can assume that that's the Apple mail effect there. And it is cool. You can see right on the date on that chart, like you mentioned, Kelly, that you can see the date that MPP came in and and the effect that it's had. So really neat outcome of the data in the report.
0: I think another interesting thing uh, then is that even though desktop opens are inflated, we saw in the data that mobile open rates are de- have declined because essentially because apple is downloading that pixel again automatically that's tracking as that initial download by apple is tracking as a desktop mm-hmm. open and so any time after that, that someone actually opens the email on mobile, it's not tracking that because it's already tracked as a desktop open. So you we were seeing in the the data that mobile open rates are down, which when I first saw that, I was confused. I was like, why is that happening? And I did check in with our team internally to be like, why might that be happening? And, and when we dug into it, that's kind of what the experts were sharing, that it was because that first download is almost distracting from the actual potential open on a mobile device.
1: Yeah. And I think similarly, your click rates might start trending a little bit artificially lower, um, especially if they are being calculated as a percentage of the opens, like they are on Highlogic Thrive Marketing. Um, that means the calculations happening when clicks are divided into opens. So if the opens are a little inflated, it might make your clicks look lower. But I would actually counsel you to look at the actual number of clicks, not the percentage over time, and take a look to see if that trend's lower in reality or if they're staying about the same and the rate only looks lower because the opens are a little bit inflated. That makes a lot of sense.
0: Um, And I think in terms of like other ways to adapt, we talked about maybe folks changing the way you kind of think about like open and click rates you want to not just depend on those as this indicator of success like blanket indicator of success you want to remember what your actual goal is so like if you're sending an email about conference registration yeah it's great to see that the open and click rates are good on that but your ultimate goal is that people are registering for the conference so don't like lose sight of that so even if your open rates are artificially inflated or your click rates are artificially low or what have you, that doesn't change the fact that you can still track like are people registering for the conference and is what I'm doing in my marketing actually like moving them along this path that I want them to take by, again, checking in on the stats that are that go beyond open and clicks. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah, and absolutely. And I, I would even check on to that, that if you're thinking about the way you're producing longer tail campaigns and the way that you're triggering messages. Um, I know in the past, I've been a part of organizations that have done campaigns that would do like, let's send an email again to people that didn't open. Well, you're really assuming now that somebody's opened pretty loosely because Again, it could be an artificial Apple open. So if you're triggering things based off of opens, you might want to reconsider that. Same with demographic data. If you think you're targeting based off of that from what you've gathered from someone's IP address, for example, um, if that's not accurate anymore, you might want to, like you said, Kelly, focus more on the action that's been taken or not. And if they've reached the goal that you've set versus those metrics like opens um, and demographics, because I think it's just, not entirely reliable anymore. If it ever was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think there are some things that
0: we shared in a recent blog post, and I'll include the link in the show notes for our listeners, but turning on web tracking in Higher Logic Thrive Marketing, so that includes Real Magnet and Informs, that allows you to track your known users, the people who are receiving your emails and opening and clicking your emails. It can track like what pages they're going to, so you can use that and the data that you can gather through that tool to also inform whether you think someone really opened so if you did want to run a report of like did this person both open this email and visit this page then you can do that and you can see yep they did visit the conference page and that will give you a little more information so again it's kind of using that deeper reporting not just saying like oh someone opened the email so this is a successful email because you don't know for sure if they really opened the email Returning back to some of the other sections of the report, let's talk a little bit about like email volume and open rates and click rates. I'll I'll pass it over to you, Steph, to summarize some of what we found in the data.
1: Sure. Um, I know that this might not be surprising to some folks, but the number itself is pretty cool. So email volume actually increased 17% between 2021 and 2022, I think this is interesting. Um, again, email geek moment here, but you hear people say sometimes like emails dead or, you know, there's just a lot going on with the email channel. And there is. So I think it is important to note with that increase that there is something that I would call email fatigue. Um, you want to make sure that your emails are relevant and they're kind of cutting through the noise and they've got a good purpose behind them because folks' inboxes, I know mine is, are filling up Pretty quickly these days. So, just making sure you're really mindful about what you're sending and when. Um, Related to that, our open rates actually increased from 27.45% in 2021 to 34.63% in 2022. Again, um, MPP might be inflating those numbers a little bit, but something to note that um, even though the volume's increasing, the open rates aren't tanking. And then Sort of related to that, click rates, um, we saw our average click rate decrease slightly from 2.42 in 2021 to 2.32 in 2022. It's not a terrible dip, um, just a tiny bit. So again, even though folks are getting more emails, um, there's still work being done to get people to click. Mobile open rates, they've declined between 21 and 22, which I think, again, Kelly, to your point, is very interesting and I would say is most likely due to MPP. So it's dropped from 8.81% to an overall average of 3.25%, which does smack a little bit low. And then unsubscribe rates are remaining favorable at 0.05%.
0: All of that data is the kind of data that I remember when I worked in an association. I like to use that to Describe the standard that I was comparing our data to. So I could look at these open click, average open rates, average click rates, average mobile open rates, and then cross check our data against that to see, hey, are there places where we really need to improve or are we kind of in line with industry standards? So I love those sections of the report, but I'm really excited to get into like the next section of the report, which in my opinion is kind of the stuff that gives you ideas for things to try. So let's talk about some of the different things that impacted open and click rates and stuff like that.
1: Sure, absolutely. And yeah, to your point, Kelly, those benchmarks are really just benchmarks. Um, it aggregates emails from a lot of different organizations and all kinds of audiences and everything. So just keep in mind that that is an absolute average, and it's a good benchmark to measure against, but your own needs might be a little bit different. But given that, I think it's really cool to dig into some of the things that we saw that had an impact on email report metrics. So um, the first one would be the open rate by send volume. So we found that messages sent to lists under 500 recipients had higher open rates. So again, going back to the point earlier of being thoughtful and targeted in your messaging so that you can cut through the noise. If your audience size is under 500 recipients and you're really thinking about what that group of people are interested in and what action you're asking them to take, Um, you're more likely to have better results when you're being mindful and really targeting audiences for what they're interested in and what content that they might find relevant. And we found that 500 sort of a good measure and below um, to be really thoughtful and mindful and, and segmented. So it's proved out with the open rates there. Same with the open rate by subject line length. We actually found that messages with subject lines under 19 characters had higher open rates. So 19 characters, if you think about it, I mean, my name's almost that long. So it's it's pretty short. Um, That's
0: wild. <laughs> yeah, I know. I,
1: I feel like the first time you told me that, Kelly, I was like, that sounds very low. And then I started digging in. I'm like, okay, actually, it's, it's legit. So um, uh, tied into this is a fun fact that us email folks like to talk about a lot and that's human attention spans are continuing to decrease. It's gotten worse in COVID times. I know I feel that personally. Um, They've tracked that humans now lag behind goldfish. Our average attention span is only 8.25 seconds. It's actually dropped more in recent times. So we don't have a great bandwidth for paying attention very long. And given that, you know, people are skimming their inbox really, really quickly. And you have to have something short and targeted, and again, relevant to the audience, and that will get people to engage with your email. So we tracked that out and saw this in our report. It's such an interesting
0: thing because, I mean, I'm a marketing person and I have, like, the worst email hygiene you've ever seen. Like, I just, if an email isn't relevant, I don't even open or delete it. It just sits there. Like, I'm like, I don't need to read that. And it just stays in my inbox, which is horrid. I must be ruining people's, like, opening click rates, but... I think this came up on our episode with Hannah Holman too about Gen Z where she was like, yeah, if I'm getting emails that aren't directly relevant or aren't from someone I know or an organization that I like really trust, I just straight up delete it. So I think you really have to, to your point, Steph, you have to get the value of your message, like right there in the subject line really fast because you really have to get people's attention.
1: Absolutely. And I know. We can talk about this later, but I think in terms of what that looks like, um, it's a good thing to test. It's a good thing to try new things with. I know sometimes there's this urge to put as much information up front as you can, but that doesn't necessarily convert. So I think we'll touch on that a little bit later for testing, but... I actually have another point in the report that's sort of related to that, that I think is very, very interesting. And that is that the day of the week no longer impacts the open or click rate of an email. So I know in the past, I was always told things like, we can't send emails on Fridays, or we can't send emails on Sundays, nobody's reading them. Or even Monday, sometimes people are like, nope, nobody's reading their emails on Mondays. It was this really big anecdotal, you know, best day of the week would be Tuesday to send. And maybe at some point in time, that was accurate. But looking at this report and the data, it's not anymore. Um, It is spread all the way across the week. Uh, The highest open rates for messages were actually found on emails sent on Friday, Friday. So again, I was always told the opposite, but now we've seen in our data that Friday is the highest for opens and Tuesday being the second highest. But even more interesting, the highest click rate day was actually for messages sent on Sundays and Wednesdays are the second highest. So again, it is spread out all over the week. I think I'm a little bit guilty of this myself. If you put yourself in, your um recipients shoes i know on sundays i'm getting ready for the week ahead so i'm kind of cleaning out my inbox and looking at things maybe taking action on things i didn't have time to catch up with during the week so um this didn't really surprise me too too much but at the same time it's nice to have that validation in the data that you no longer have to avoid any days or times it's really up to you to test and try new things, but I really encourage you to consider breaking out of that mold if you've been sort of living in that that calendar block.
0: I think it's about like testing your own data too. So like, this is what we saw for the averages. And again, super interesting because I had the same experience as you where like there was specific days that we were told to send or not send. Um, and in fact, even in looking at this report, I, my boss was like, wait, Fridays? you can't send emails on Fridays. (laughs) And I was like, I, this isn't my like idea. This is the data. So I think, um, testing it though with your own audience, because you might have an audience like my former association was very much related to their like professional work. So we often saw, for example, that we had really high desktop open versus mobile open because like people were looking at this stuff at work. They were not looking at it at home. And you might see similar, like specific things to your industry if you do test. But to Steph's point too, like breaking out of the mold and trying different things, trying sending something on a different day and seeing what happens is a really great way to just see like you won't know unless you try and see if something does better on a different day of the week. Like if you always send on Tuesdays, maybe you try sending on, you know, a Friday or a Sunday or what have you and then cross check the data.
1: I hear you, Kelly. And I know, like you said, um, it can be tough to get buy-in in your organization for that. I think we've run into it ourselves. But, you know, in the spirit of growth and in the spirit of trying new things, you know, they say you can fail fast and keep moving forward. So it's really not an indicator of you failing. It's just you testing a different kind of water and seeing if it feels good or if you might need to redirect again. But you never know until you try.
0: And um, I'll flag for folks, again, the the report itself, we'll link it in the show notes, but in the report, there is a section at the end that gives you some ideas for A, reviewing your own data, and B, for doing some testing of your data. So there's a couple suggestions for like A-B tests you could try. Um, And for those not familiar with what A-B testing is, that's just when you would have like two versions of something. So maybe if you're testing subject line, for example, you'd have two different subject lines, you'd send them both out and see which one performed. I've seen people do it differently. I've seen them do it where they like truly split their list in half. But the way that I have always liked is where you do like a subset of your audience. You do like I don't know, Steph, what percentage you Uh, might recommend Usually like
1: like 10 to 15%. Yeah. So like 10% gets one and then 10% gets the other. And then you reserve the remaining percentage that will get the winner. Um, But it depends on your audience size. I think, you know, 10% for some people might be really tiny. So take a look at your audience size and then um, break it down. But you want a fair amount of a sample size to allow you to get, sort of a, a leg up on one or the other, but um, you wouldn't want to test sending it to like one person versus another person because yeah. that's, <laughs> one is not enough, but I do think if you get a, a sizable chunk of your database, but you know, and to your point, Kelly, some people just straight divide their list in half and try an end to end, just straight split AB test. Um, and that also works too. Yeah, we did that
0: with our newsletter when we were redesigning our newsletter um, for our members at my association because we had two different designs that we wanted to see like which one performed better to decide which one we were going to use. I think one was like a lot shorter and one was a lot longer um, and we ran both of them and we did it to the whole list because we didn't have a huge list and we really wanted to get like a significant um, result to be able to say like this one did a lot better. I think we actually chose to do it because it was such a change we actually chose to do it three months in a row just Mm -hmm. in case it was like someone wasn't paying attention (laughs) like the first month um and then we figured out which one resonated better with our members
1: see i love that and i think that's a, a really good example of the spirit of trying new things and also It is a little bit like a science experiment. I think it's one of my favorite parts of email marketing, to be honest, because you can run a little hypothesis and test it out. And again, you're not failing if it doesn't work. You just ran a test and you got to try new things. So I think it's really cool to challenge yourself a little bit to find new ways to do things, but also just have a little fun and see where it leads you. And A-B tests are a really good way to try those things out.
0: Um, so let's keep talking about like some ideas for operationalizing some of the data from the report that we've talked about. Um, I feel like we've covered this, we covered this one a little earlier, but in terms of like making send volume smaller, because we saw that if you have a smaller, um, send volume for your message, like if it's going to under 500 people, you get a better result.
1: Um, and again, I think you sort of touched on this already stuff, but do you want to recap? It's really important to know your audience. And one of those pieces is to think about subsets of your audience too. So you might have a group of people that are always engaged. They might be easier to target with an email that's a lighter lift for commitment for action versus groups that maybe haven't taken action in a while. So if you have any engagement data, you could segment on people that are active versus inactive and send a little bit different messaging to those groups. You can segment in ways like geographical location. If you know that you have members that are in a certain part of the country or are in a certain part of the world, Um, you you might not want to send an email about snow to someone who lives in Australia in the summertime. So things like that are important to keep in mind. And then just really thinking through topical things that apply. So if you know that your audience has a particular interest, let's use dogs, for example, because I am a dog person, Kelly, I'm sorry, I know you have cats. Um, But, you know, if I was getting emails about cats, I would be a little, you know, I don't know if I'd be as engaged as if I were getting an email about a dog. So that's a loose example. But to all to say, if you look at your data and you know that you've got folks that can be broken up in sort of those interest groups as well, and that's a way to get your message you know, a little bit more targeted, a little bit more re- relevant, and hopefully see better results.
0: I remember we would sometimes, uh, when we had webinars... We did send out a broad message to the whole audience, but then we would often send our secondary webinar message to a subset of people who had attended similar topics before. So like if we had, let's use your example (laughs) again, Steph, if we had a, a webinar on dogs coming up, then we'd go back in our database and pull a list of attendees from former sessions that talked about dogs, whether that be conference sessions or other webinars. And then we'd follow up with those folks and say, hey, uh, we saw you liked content about dogs. We've got (laughs) another piece of content coming out about dogs. And then um, those usually performed really well and usually uh, made our webinar registrations jump. So uh, it definitely people like to know that you're paying attention to what they want. The next area I thought maybe we could jump into is about shortening subject lines. So, And I have some ideas about this too, but let me let you go first, Steph.
1: All right. And I know um, because there's no degree in email, I was a English and business major. So I think the subject line piece is, is really interesting to me from that perspective. I think a lot of us need... A second to sort of step away from what we write and then come back and look and we're like, ah, I put a couple extra words in there. Uh, so I do this a lot. Um, you know, I take a first pause at my subject line and then come back later and say, oh, you know, there might be some extra words that I can take out or use punctuation in their place, whether it's a dash or an ampersand or things like that. So you can definitely find ways to chop some words. You know, if you have something that's long just in its proper name, um, thinking through, like I've seen some long event names or like webinar names, there's ways to cut it down so that you're putting the subject line more in terms of benefits that they'll gain by attending versus including the name of the event every time. So an example would be something like improve your emails. And then the inside of the email could be a webinar invitation to an email marketing benchmark uh report <laughs> webinar so things like that where if you're putting the subject line more into actionable terms and and not just including that long proper name in a long sentence and um, that can help you cut it down i think we had a question on the webinar kelly about pre-header text i don't know if folks are necessarily familiar but the subject line is one piece. And that's really the main focus area of an email sent. But the supporting act is the pre-header. And that's the little text that appears below someone's subject line in uh, their inbox. And it gives you a little bit of a teaser about what's coming inside the email. So I think, you know, some brands don't put Things at all, and that's when you see a bunch of gibberish or a repeat of the subject line, and that might look a little funny. Um, but I think people are getting more and more trained to notice them. Brands are being really creative, you know, telling jokes and answering them in that in the pre header. So it's kind of neat, and you can be really creative with it. Um, and that being said, I think about the length of an original tweet <laughs> is. The length that I would cut off at. So for those that remember when it was 140 characters, um, anything that's shorter than that should be helpful to support your subject line. But I still wouldn't put anything super critical in there that might be missed. It's more of a nudge to people to open, but not necessarily a directive place where you'd want to put something that you might need them to take away. That makes a lot of sense. And I feel like you hit on some of the
0: things I try to do when I'm crafting subject lines too. like, like you said, draft it in advance, come back to it, see if you have extra words. Like I feel like I would might write a subject line that's like, you should join us for our conference. And then I realize, well, I don't need you should like, that's a <laughs> lot of characters that I could just cut. I can just say, join us for our conference. Exactly. Or better yet, like you said earlier, tie it to what they're going to gain by the conference by being like, oh, learn you know, key strategies for associations or something, for example. So definitely those kind of things. And then someone I worked with before, or maybe I saw it on a webinar mentioned like using that little bar punctuation. It's like just an up and down vertical bar Mm -hmm. to like separate like quick statements, like three days, 500 sessions. That's actually way too many sessions. (laughs) Um, So like using that to kind of, separate things without having to use like proper punctuation or proper structure of like a sentence in your subject line.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I don't think you need to be writing them in the Queen's English necessarily. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've also heard
0: folks ask, and I'm curious too, um, have you heard whether it's still not advisable to include prices or like dollar amounts in subject lines. Cause I've heard conflicting information. Like sometimes I feel like I hear that it's not good because it'll get things triggered as spam. But I found in my own data, our association that putting like dollar amounts, sometimes like I wouldn't want every subject line to have dollar amounts, but putting dollar amounts for like a discount or something caught people's attention.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think this is um, sort of in the same camp as the day of the week recommendations. It probably at some point in time was legit. And I think, you know, when I was first sending emails, I'd heard the same thing, right? That price and promo, a couple other words like free, um, they used to say not to say free. That's really not common anymore. So um, I stay pretty connected to the deliverability space. And um, this comes up still pretty frequently and the experts are now very much reassuring us that it's not the trigger that's going to be caught in the spam filters anymore. So it's not really watching for a magical list of words. It's just more a pattern of behavior that might catch you in a spam filter versus a specific word that you put in a subject line.
0: That makes sense because I feel like the filters, oh, I mean, technology is getting smarter. So I feel like the filters are getting <laughs> a little bit smarter that they're not just like blocking things based on one tiny thing.
1: No, but that being said, you don't want to put like a curse word, I imagine, or yeah. like <laughs> something yeah. terrible. And, but yeah.
0: <laughs> and I think you want to like ask yourself what you're what your recipients want to see too. Cause sometimes like I, there's certain brands that I've unsubscribed from them because they put way too many emojis in the subject line because it annoys yep. me. And frankly, like maybe for certain brands and certain target audiences, that's fine. But for me personally, like if I was a, a brand's direct like audience, then they should not overload their subject line with emojis. Cause I find it annoying. <laughs> Same. Let's jump into, I feel like we could talk about subject line forever, (laughs) but let's jump into um, writing compelling calls to action and kind of like tips for, you know, driving action from your emails with like a good link, a call to action.
1: What's interesting about writing a compelling CTA, you know, humans have really interesting ways of behaving. They like to be asked to do things. They don't necessarily like to be told to do things. They need to see a benefit and the action for them to be able to take it. So keeping that in mind, when you think about what you want them to react to, to take action um, in a way that you are asking them to, you really want to make it action and benefit oriented. So instead of saying like, register now for this webinar, you can say like improve your performance with learning or something along those lines. I think people are also pretty tired these days and reading pretty quickly. So if you're saying that you want them to do something that might take a lot of time or effort, if you can write a CTA that lowers that level of effort or commitment, if you think like browse resources instead of buy now, that is going to affect what people feel and what they f- in, what they believe your level of effort would be to take that action. But again, definitely test your subject lines and see what resonates with your group. Maybe they like being talked to a little more directly. Maybe they like being encouraged to learn versus buy. So it's something to test for sure, but really put yourself in your, um, member's shoes and just think, you know, okay, if they're really busy and and we're asking them to do something, um, how can we make it sound more compelling and a little bit of a lighter lift for them to do? And I think just being, I don't know, in the copy
0: of the email, I think being transparent about time too, like if you have a survey, being transparent about time that it will take to do the survey, I think helps too, that kind of thing. And I also would say one thing that I often struggled with when working with different stakeholders on an email is that everyone like would want to fit in their call to action and have to be like, Hey, we've got to, it has to be clear for someone what they need to do from this email. We don't want like, unless it's like a digest email where there's several different links and it's okay that people are going to different ones. If you have like a specific email that's trying to get somebody to do something, you want to have like a pretty streamlined call to action, like one or two. You don't want to have like six calls to action that are like just dividing someone's attention. If you want them to do a particular thing, like tell them that you
1: want them to do that one thing. (laughs) Absolutely. I think a lot of folks fall victim to what you just described. And also along those lines, testing where you put the CTAs in the body of the email, I think if you're expecting people to wade through a wall of text before getting to the CTA. Um, Again, with the goldfish stuff, people aren't really going to uh, (laughs) take the time to do that. So you might wanna test or try moving your CTAs up higher in the copy, or if you've historically been doing them just as inline links, maybe trying a button, um, I always recommend doing at least one button and one inline link if possible. Some folks are trained to want to click a button versus an inline link, especially if they're on their mobile phone. So um, just something to think about when you're doing the CTAs. Uh, again, to your point, Kelly, like, don't confuse folks and, and make it easy and and simple do you have advice at one
0: of the sections of the report is on metrics suggestions for metrics to pull? Um, so definitely folks, you can download the report and look through those, but Steph, do you have advice for metrics
1: to pull? One of the things that I recommend uh, doing is to really set an intention for yourself to keep an eye on your metrics. It's a really good thing to keep a baseline and know where you're skewing or where you typically perform on averages for yourself, not just against benchmarks in our report. Um, And I think the importance of that is so that you know if things start dipping or going higher, that that's actually a win, or that's maybe something that needs to be course corrected. So the only way to really know what your averages are, are to kind of actually do the reporting. (laughs) Um, I know sometimes, again, I was an English major, so I kind of have to force myself to do it. Um, I actually put a meeting on my own calendar for the beginning of the month, so that I take a look back at the previous month and pull my reports and and keep those benchmarks going, so that um, I keep myself accountable for my results. I think there's a really good list at the end of the report that gives you a couple metrics to check. But you know, I, again, basic email metrics, opens, clicks, unique clicks, click to opens, your unsubscribes, things of that nature um, are all really important as a baseline level. But then diving in where you can to see, okay, which link got the most clicks? Um, did this link perform a- in the way that we thought. Did people take the action and download or register or give us the information that we were hoping for? So metrics at the baseline are really great to keep um, at the high level, but again, digging in where you can um, to make sure that folks are taking through the action that you're asking them to do. I know we had a question in our webinar about how long after sending the email, um, would you recommend looking at the data and I know, um, Kelly, you had said where you were from in an association world that you were typically doing one to two weeks um, after the send for a report. And I completely agree with that. I think, you know, we see the majority of activity in an email after the two week mark, it, it tails off. So the majority of it happens between, you know, the send date and week two. Um, we are seeing that the is. The tail is getting longer. People are holding emails and coming back to them again um, months sometimes in the past. But again, the majority of that action is going to be captured within two weeks. So I usually look at it around the one week mark to say, okay, like, how is this doing in general? And then using the two weeks as a better barometer for how it performed. Um, and I kind of keep an eye on all sends every day just to make sure something didn't like completely
0: fail. But I think, yeah, um, I feel like I always yeah. would look at a send like at least like right after or the day after just to make sure that it actually went. Yeah, down. that's a good <laughs> or, habit like, to get in. <laughs> yeah. Or like I'd notice we used to segment our list and like one time a message went to the wrong segment. And so as soon as I looked at like the number, I was like, wait a minute that shouldn't be that number. Yeah. That should be this number. <laughs> and then I realized, oh, my God, we sent it to the wrong one. So um, it happens to everyone. Or if it doesn't, have, if it hasn't happened to you, good on you. Uh, no, you everyone
1: but everyone gets it. their badge. <laughs> Everybody yeah. gets their badge. Don't feel bad. Um, yeah. But I also think to your point, you know, I, I in the past have had folks in my organization come to me an hour after an email sent and be like, how's it doing? You know, are, has everybody downloaded the piece yet? And I'm like, oh, like slow down. People are in a meeting or people are at lunch. Like you got you got to give them a break. So um, for my own sanity, I would look at it that quickly. But as for the performance data, I would wait to more of the one or two week mark.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I would say there was like one exception at our association, which was our monthly newsletter. Um, we would often see like a, a longer open rate like we because we looked at our own data we we looked at our data one time to see like well what does the data do over time are people like maybe looking back at this throughout the, the month and we did find that they were so that one, we started pulling we would look at it and at the one to two week mark just to make sure like it looked like that one didn't like tank or something but when we were rep- pulling for like full-on reporting we would do quarterly pulls to see like okay, now that these have gone through their month cycle because the next month has gone out, now we can kind of consider that people are probably done with that one. I do have another, this was a question from the webinar that I thought was interesting and we don't have data on it in the report, but I did want to throw it in here as like a bonus question. Um, So someone asked, um, what is best to put in the friendly from field and or how do you decide who to
1: send your emails from? Like, Are there benchmarks around this? So as you just mentioned, Kelly, we didn't benchmark this in our report, but it has given us a good idea for the future. But I do encourage you to use your own data and do testing and see what performs best. Um, Again, if you put yourself in the shoes of your members, who are they gonna recognize? Are they going to recognize your name of just the association and it's coming from your association itself with a general marketing box supporting that? Or is it somebody that they know who represents you best of all and and you can send on behalf of them. Maybe you do a test and you send half from your association name and half from a person and see what happens. But I do think that it all depends on your group, your audience, what their familiarity is with you in their inbox. I think, you know, it's not bad to try new things for a friendly from, but you don't want to go too wild. Um, I've seen brands that switch it up so much and I'm like, who the heck is in my inbox? And turns out it's just like Old Navy, but I don't know because they've changed their friendly from so many times. So I, I do want to caution you going too, too crazy on this one just because um, familiarity and recognizability, if that's a real word, um brand recognition yeah. <laughs> recognition of the inbox is um super important because that's what's going to make that connection in your um, recipient's head that says okay i trust this person i know this person then i want to open and click this email so again it's kind of an it depends answer but i definitely recommend testing it just a little bit but not too too much and to see which resonates best with your audience Um, At my association, we did have a few messages.
0: We would most of our messages went from a general inbox, but we did sometimes have ones that we sent from specific either people or specific inboxes to show people that it was a different message. So like if it was a membership specific message, maybe it went from our membership coordinator who like had been there for a long time. So people knew her, or if it was like a really important message about the organization or a conference or a decision we were making, then we would send it like quote unquote from our executive director because her name like held that weight for our audience that if they saw her name, they, they'd be more likely to open that message. We didn't want to spam them with that though either because we really again because it was the executive director a big name in our organization lots of respect for her we didn't want to like make every random marketing message come from her because then it's going to lose its like its touch because people are going to be like well that's not really from her that's like marketing whereas again if we had like an announcement about a conference a really important announcement then that would really come from her and have her signature on it so It is, again, like you said, stuff like something you can kind of test in your own organization and see like sending from different inboxes. So again, another example, the membership at Inbox, when we sent stuff from that, that performed better for our members, but our webinars at Inbox did not perform better for our webinar messages. And we were finding it was bouncing more. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what was happening. It was bouncing for some reason, I think maybe because it didn't have like The recognition or the sender score or something. Um, I could have dug deeper into that, but I just decided to stop sending (laughs) things from webinars and go back to our main inbox. So looking at my own data then helped us see like, okay, this is worth doing for membership, but not worth doing for webinars. Well, I feel like again, Steph, you and I, we could talk about email forever. We could talk about this for two hours, but I don't know that people are going to listen to a two hour (laughs) podcast. So um, I will encourage folks, listeners to check out the report. There's a lot of data in there. And if I could give you like one takeaway item from it, it's compare your own data. Like do those A, B tests, check your own data, see what's resonating with your members. Like this report is a starting point. It's something to learn from. It's something to give you ideas. But it's not something that you have to, like, live and die by. (laughs) If you're seeing your members resonate like something else resonates with them that our data didn't show, don't, like, change up a good thing just because you're seeing our data show something different. So I really want to thank Steph for joining me to talk about the report because it would have been boring if I was talking to Um, myself. (laughs) Thanks for having me. This was fun. And to our listeners, the link to the full report will be included in the show notes. And I'll also include that link to the Mail privacy protection blog post I mentioned in case you wanna check out some tips for that. Take a look at those, get some ideas for A-B tests you wanna try, get some ideas for metrics you wanna pull and make sure you subscribe to the member engagement show so you can hear more shows like this talking about strategies and resources for member engagement and membership marketing.